All right, church, let's launch into it, maybe. Hey, if you're new with us, uh, my name's Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FB Hanford, and we are, uh, I'm excited that you're here. Um, Jeff hit on it for just a second, but November 4th, if you want to get to know some of our new staff members, and I would hope that you do, 2 o'clock, we're going to be meeting in the fellowship hall. Don't let that fool you. There will be no food. So... If you're like, well, forget it then, that's fine. We know where your heart lies um, in your stomach. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but our three new staff members uh, will indeed be here. Uh, they're going to be sharing a little bit of their story, uh, how they came to faith, who they are. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to ask them a couple questions. We'll open it up for a few questions, and then, uh, then we'll get out of, there, out of there. We're hoping to keep it at, at right about an hour. So if you're like, well... Put off your nap for one more hour, and then you can hit it afterwards, okay? But, uh, but we're really, really excited about it. Um, we really are, and I hope you are um, as well. So um, we are, we're continuing our series called Epistles. For those of you who are new with us, epistle is essentially, it means letter. And we're specifically talking through all of Paul's epistles. So that we would call those Pauline epistles is what they are. And, uh, and we, as, we've been, as we've been walking through, we, we've kind of discovered our purpose along the way is that as we can elevate above the verses, essentially be able to see the forests through the trees, we're able to see what Paul is actually writing about um, um, as a whole. Whole rather than just little specific subtext within it. Because I don't know about you, but when I sit down to write an email, uh, I don't necessarily have the specific sentences in mind. I have an overall thought as to the direction of where I'm going. Um, and so it has been incredibly beneficial for us to, to look at these letters as a whole. And so today is going to be no different. We're going to be looking at, uh, at Paul's letter to the Colossian church. Um, and uh, uh, we've talked about how his letter to the Philippian church is uh, the city of Philippi and that sort of thing. So this would be the letter to the city of Colossae. Don't let the A confuse you. It's Colossae. Okay. So that being said, uh, most of us in here though, are kind of seeking to, uh, to create an identity that feels right to us and that looks attractive to others. I can prove it. The reason I can prove it is because right now on social media, there's a whole lot of us who are telling the entire world the way in which they should vote right? This is what you should believe about a specific topic. This is the highlight reel of my family. Also, here's a little bit of my faith journey. This is what culture says. And as we, as we scroll through people's Facebook pages or Instagram pages, it becomes very evident as to what it is that they believe and what it is that they hold near and dear to their heart. For some of us, it's cats because it's a sheer amount of cat videos that you have on your Facebook page. Yeah, I got one. Amen. Awesome cats. To others, though, the majority of the things we see on there may be their political ideologies. To still some others, it may simply be pointing people back to Jesus. Well, what Paul is going to be addressing here to the church, to the Colossian church specifically, is this idea that, that the Colossians have taken a whole lot of a bunch of different belief systems and thrown them together and said, hey, God, look what we did. Here's our new religion. And so Paul is going to warn them ultimately against that. So let's jump in. 
Our author, our first slide here, our author is going to be Paul, obviously. The date that he wrote this is between 61 and 63 AD. It's written, like I said, to the church in Colossae, and it's written from a Roman prison. This would be one of Paul's four, uh, as, the, as they're called, prison epistles, because he wrote four different epistles from his, his Roman prison there. Colossae, though, was mostly a pagan city. A lot of uh, a strong intermingling of Jews there. Um, in 62 BC, there were, uh, there were 11,000 Jewish freemen in that whole kind of area. So this would be a pretty large population of Jews there. And this is going to explain the nature of some of the problems that arose from the church there. Paul's writing to them largely because he has caught wind of yet another early church with messed up theology. We've talked about this on numerous occasions, right? Paul's main intent, or he had two, two purposes, one of which was to allow Gentiles to come into the family of God, or at least give them permission to. God had allowed it, and Paul was like, no, look, God's grace is extended to all of you, not just Jews. So if you're new to church, you may be like, what's a Gentile? Well, there's two groups of people in the world. We've said this each week, that there are Jews and there are Gentiles. So if you're trying to figure out which camp you fall into, if you're not Jewish, you would be a good... We're learning today. So, so that's, that's largely the first thing that Paul wants to do, wants to achieve, is to allow the Gentiles to know that, that the grace of God is extended to them as well. The other thing that Paul wants people to understand, and specifically churches, is that your theology needs to be correct. What you understand and believe about God needs to be correct if we are going to honor him according to the way that we should honor him. And so that's largely what Paul is doing. Last week, we took a little bit of a break being in, in Philippians. It was joyful. It was happy. Paul's not talking about how what you guys are doing is messed up or anything like that. But don't worry. We're jumping right back in to Paul saying, hey, stop it. As a matter of fact, this is called, this is largely called the Colossian heresy that Paul is going to be uh, uh, talking about in his letter. So now would be a good time, knowing that Paul is going to be addressing heresy, for you to turn to your neighbor and remind them of two things. First thing I want you to turn to your neighbor and say is, hey, churches aren't perfect. Can you turn and tell your neighbor that for me real quick? Good. Now the harder one that we've discussed over and over is turn to your neighbor and say, you know what? Our church isn't perfect. I know some of you say it through gritted teeth, but you're saying it now and that's progress. I'll take it. Okay. Because largely that's what Paul is trying to establish here is, hey, we're not perfect, but let's get back to what God had intended. The Colossian church is what, like I said, is what is falling into what's commonly known as the Colossian heresy. And this heresy is what other churches were dealing with. We talked about this a little bit earlier, essentially allowing other beliefs, extra biblical beliefs that many in the region just assumed were okay into their theology into their understanding of God, into the way that they worshiped God. The first issue with the church in Colossae was pagan worship that was beginning to take over the church. And so again, this is largely a pagan area, so this shouldn't be very surprising, is that, is that the church established on a Christian foundation and a Christian theology, understanding who Jesus was, but ultimately the church starts reverting back to what it is what? Comfortable with, what it's familiar with what they deem is okay. And so they're going back to this idea of, of pagan worship. And that's one of the things that they were dealing with. The heresy though was, was people wanting to mesh paganism and Christianity together, thinking that that was going to be okay. Now there's a word that we have for that. It's called syncretism. 
And we're going to talk about syncretism uh, a little bit later, but, but the word is syncretism and it's defined as the amalgamation. I know that's another big word that I needed to find in order to find syncretism, but the meshing together of different religions, different cultures and different schools of thought. That's what it is. That's what syncretism is. So uh, in, in other words, in plain language, everyone was trying to take influences from every part of their life, their life, their culture, their religion, their political ideologies, smash them together to make one messed up backwards theological mess. That wasn't their goal. They weren't going to be like, hey, let's mess up everything that we've heard. It just kind of happened because of the different influences that they have in their life. Sound familiar? It tends to happen in our lives uh, everywhere. That, that the things that we hold dear tend to creep their way in. That we don't, haven't elevated our sight lines to Christ and Christ only. It tends to be Christ and our family. It tends to be Christ and our political ideologies. It tends to be Christ and whatever culture says is okay. And we slam them together and we say, this is who I am. This is my religion, whether we mean to or not. And so Paul is largely going to address that today. Some of the other issues that he's dealing with is and some of the other things that they've kind of thrown in is uh, philosophies of men that denied the preeminence of Jesus. We'll, talk, we'll define preeminence in just a second. So hang with me. Um, other things included old Jewish traditions that no longer had a place in Christianity, right? We talked about this a few weeks back when we were talking about the Corinthian church. Things like um, monitoring what they should eat and things like male circumcision. There were other things as well, though. Things like angel worship and even things that's, that's called aseatism, where essentially the goal was for you to inflict physical pain on your own body so that you wouldn't give in to lusts of the flesh, so anytime you had a bad thought or anything like that, you would whip yourself or hurt yourself in some way. These are some of the ideologies that are creeping into uh, the church of Colossae. So they took all these things. They wanted to wrap it all together and say, look at our religion. This is who we are. To which Paul res responds with a re resounding no. And here is why the answer should indeed be no. Which is going to launch us into the meat this morning. So your first section is section one. It's Colossians 1, uh, 1 through 123. And it's going to deal with what is the preeminence of Christ. Preeminence of Christ essentially means that Jesus surpasses all others. He is above. He is before. He is in, he is through, he is superior, he is authoritative to everything. He is preeminent. That's what that word means. And largely, Paul is going to start here, start his argument here with the preeminence of Christ because if Paul can establish the fact that Jesus is preeminent, that Jesus is God, if he can start there, then everything else is easily going to fall into place for the church in Colossae. That's why he starts his argument there. He even says in uh, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, as he's describing, uh, pre, as the author of Hebrews is describing um, Jesus. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir over all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification 
propitiation for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So as the church was doing their best to discredit who Christ is, as essentially a created being who wasn't eternal, Paul was going to tell them the preeminence of Christ is essential to our faith and belief in who God actually is. That's what Paul is talking about here. Paul says it like this in your, in your key verse. The son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's telling the church, look, Christ is above, Christ is before And he is in all things. So stop it with the assumption that he isn't a big deal. Jesus is the only deal. And I think this is exactly where Paul needed to start, like I said. Because if he can establish this, if he can establish that Jesus is indeed God, then after that, everything else is going to fall into place. It's the same reason, for you parents out there, right? It's the same reason that sometimes we have to say to our kids, it's because I'm your parent. Right? Anybody ever do that? Right? Like, but dad, why? Because I'm your parent and you need to listen to me. Okay? We are establishing an authority over our children. We're saying, look, you may not agree with me in your heart. Your feelings may be counter to what, to what I am telling you right now, but I am your parent. I am an authority figure in your life. And as we establish the authority of us in our kids' lives, then they begin to do the things that we ask them to do, or they don't, and they get punished. <laughs> in this case, it's not eternal damnation, though, so we're good. Some of you caught on a second late to that. That's okay. But that's ultimately what is, what, is, what is going on here, what Paul is trying to describe here. He is trying to assert, assert Christ as the authority figure. And it, as he asserts him as an authority, everything then that he said, everything that he did, everything that he told people to do, now becomes a mandate, not a suggestion. And that's what Paul is ultimately trying to get to. So, which leads us into section two, which is Colossians 1, 24 to 2, 7. Your major theme there is Paul, the apostle of Christ. So much like last week, as Paul kind of talked about different people in the faith that others should look up to, Paul's going to do the same thing and kind of talk about himself. He even says in verse 25, I have become its servant by the commission of God, gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul here, I think, is doing his best to tell the Colossians that because of Christ's preeminence, because of who Christ is, he will serve him forever. He's also establishing the fact that he cares for the church in Colossae a ton. Colossae a ton. And because of the fact that he cares so much, what he is about to talk about with them is out of love and a dedication to Christ, not simply him trying to align them uh, with their actions. Even Colossians 2.5, it says, For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how, how firm in faith, how firm your faith in Christ is. Even though I'm not around, 
And even though I'm about to tell you a whole bunch of stuff that's going to sting a little bit, I want you to know that I am excited about your faith being firmed up, your faith in Christ that is going to be a lasting faith. I'm about to tell you these things because I love you so much. Man, I just keep coming back to to, to parenting in this. That, man, I tell you these things not because I want to be your friend. I tell you these things because I'm an authority figure and it's good for you to do these things. Right? Like like Halloween, the fall carnival. All all parents in here are going to deal with that tension. Parents of young kids anyway, right? Because you're like, okay, 8 p.m., we're done with the car-to-car candy walk. How much candy can I give my kid <laughs> to still be like, still be okay with, with my kids having candy and oh, it's a celebration and this is fun and everything like that and still be responsible and an authority figure in their life to say, look, if you have that many candy bars before bed, you're going to wake up without teeth and about 10 pounds fatter. So don't do it. But we deal with that tension as parents. We deal with that tension if you, have, you, know, if you, are, if you manage people. You say, look, you are, I'm doing these things because it's better for you. It's better for the organization. It's better for the direction that we're going. We're doing these things. And while it may be hard to hear, ultimately, Jesus did these things because he is God and we are not. And so we need to follow through in the things that he had said. So Paul is doing all this preparation for them as he gets to section three and settle in because section three is really where Paul starts talking about the idea of syncretism and the Colossian heresy. So section three, it's a warning against syncretism. Your key verse is going to be two eight, and it says this, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the, elemental, and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Things that ultimately don't matter. Which depends on human tradition, things that we put forth, we think are the most important things. Don't do that, is what Paul is telling them. Syncretism, it describes the meaning of all these different viewpoints coming together to to put forth what would be like a superior religion. And that's what's happening here. As so many Christians still evolve, they take a little bit of what the Bible says, they mix it a little bit of what their friends talk to them into believing at some point in their life, and then mix it all together with a little bit of what their favorite celebrity blogger says and their favorite newscaster says, and they slam it all together and they say, look who I am, this is my religion, this is what I worship, this is what I'm putting forth. That's what's happening Here in the church in Colossians, you can copy and paste and send a letter to the capital C church today. And it would be the same thing. The reality is, is that the church in Colossae had a a half-hearted commitment to Jesus. And a half-hearted commitment to Jesus is bound to be the result of a half-baked understanding of who he is. That's a Tom Mercer quote for you. A half-hearted understanding, or a half... Let me read again. A half-hearted commitment to Jesus is bound to be the result of a half-baked understanding of who Jesus is. And so Paul is constantly going back. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. This is Jesus' preeminent. He is God. 
over and over and over again. One of the most obvious contributors to the time of uh, uh, to the syncretism in the first century church was a philosophy that's called Gnosticism. It starts with a G. There's a silent G in there if you're trying to take notes. But but Gnosticism and Gnosticism was was a dualistic view of matter and spirit that everything you could see and touch was evil. Everything that you could see and touch was evil, and the only good that existed was spiritual, which to most of us are like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, fall of man, like we're 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 eternally depraved, right? Like like not eternally, we we are we're we're depraved from the outset. But everything bad was physical, everything good was spiritual, and the Gnostics concluded that because Jesus was born physically. You know where I'm going with this. Because Jesus was born physically, he was contaminated by evil and therefore couldn't have been God. That's Gnosticism. And that's one of those things that was getting wrapped up in here. But those who actually knew Jesus, the apostles, were convinced that in Christ, the good, invisible God was made visible by the good, yet, yet visible Jesus. It talks about that in John chapter 1. John 1, 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. But how do we know, how do we know then that Jesus is indeed God? Well, John began his gospel this way in John chapter 1, verse 1. For those of you who have read it, you probably know it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word in this instance is a capital W. It's actually referring to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. So in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. And the Word was with God. And Jesus was with God. And the Word was God. And Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So obviously John's referring to Jesus. John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus is indeed preeminent. See, to us, particular words are important, right? I've learned that a lot over the last four months. <laughs> particular words are important. The way that you express yourself is important. Effectively communicating our thoughts requires choosing the clearest words that we can think of to often reflect exactly what it is that we want to communicate, right? Like, guys, can I get an amen in the room? Like, I need to think twice before I say words sometimes. Amen. Thank you, Gene. <laughs> But right, like so many times I start to have a conversation with my wife, a spirited conversation with my wife, and I say something that I don't actually mean, but it just kind of came out and it was the wrong word. And all of a sudden things have escalated from a spirited conversation to a more spirited conversation. <laughs> so choosing words appropriately are incredibly, it's, that's incredibly important in our culture today. But to the Jews, the, the idea of, of, of logos, word, ran even deeper than that. To the Jew, a word spoken was a deed done. They knew that when God spoke, whatever it was would be accomplished instantly. If Jesus was the word sent from God, then he would not only say uh, what God would say and do what God would do, but in every single aspect of his life, he would reflect exactly who God would be. You could say that, was, that God was as good as his word. But that's a Jewish audience. 
That would have, what would that have meant essentially to a Gentile reader? 700 years before Christ, a, a well-known Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, lived in Ephesus. Sounds like a nursery rhyme. Uh, but he was the guy who said that it's impossible to step into the same river twice. Essentially meaning that, that life is constantly progressing. That by the time you remove your foot from the river and stepped again, you would be stepping into a different river. Which most were like, yeah, that's, that's true. Because the water you stepped in before was long gone downstream. And to him, all of life was that way. Everything in life was that way. But then he took that step, that a step further and asked, if that's true, then why does there seem to be an order and a design to everything that we see? Why would that be true? If everything was constantly changing, why did the world not exist in a state of perpetual chaos? Why was cosmic change so orderly? He concluded that, that there must be a divine reason, or as he called it, a word that controlled the universe. By the time the apostles wrote the New Testament, Heraclitus' ideas were well-established part of Greek philosophy. So for the Greeks who may have been reading this, the Greeks who would have been reading John's gospel, John was identifying Jesus as that word, the one who controlled the cosmos. So it's a double-edged sword for, the, for the, the Jew as well as for the Gentile. So every Bible translation in the world clearly declares that, that, that reality except one, that Jesus was God, that John 1, 1, the word was God. The people in the Jehovah's Witness Church, our friends there, say that he was a God. No Greek manuscript we know of, including any that they've identified, includes the article A in the text. Yet their new world translation declares that Jesus was a God. Basically, there's two reasons why we believe Jesus was God. The first one is the Bible says he is God. And the second one is, is Jesus said he was God. That's why. Jesus outranks everyone and everything because Jesus is an HD portrait of God. That's who Jesus is. Okay, raise your hand. No, don't raise your hand. Think in your head. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Think in your head if you were, if you owned one of the first TV sets that ever came out, ever. Like you remember listening to the radio when you were younger and then all of a sudden mom and dad brought home that tiny grayscale TV and it was incredible. You could watch things. I have no clue. I have no context. But it was incredible, right? And then you see this progression from, from grayscale to tube TVs, those big daddy boxes that sat on the ground and you could like tilt from side to side to get a better view wherever you wanted to sit. That was the first TV I remember in my home. And then beyond that, like things started getting smaller and then there were flat screen TVs, but flat screen TVs at the time were still like that wide, right? And like, no, but it's flat screen. It's awesome. And then it continued to evolve, and then HDTV came around. And it blew everybody's minds because you could read the numbers on the jerseys of the sports players that were playing all of a sudden, right? Like football, they weren't just like a blur running down the sideline. You're like, what? That's an actual human being that's running down. That's crazy. And now today, we fast forward, we got like the ultra HD, 4K, all a bunch of different numbers that you're like, okay, does this just mean it's clearer? All right, sweet, it's clearer. 
And now beyond that, they're filming things in like 8K and 12K. I'm like, how is that even a thing? Like, it's not possible to get any more clear than this. And this is the same thing. Jesus is the ultra HD 12K version of God. He is God in flesh. He is seen perfectly clearly from his birth to his crucifixion, crucifixion to him rising again. He is perfectly seen as God. And throughout, throughout time, God has revealed himself with an increasing level of clarity over and over and over again. God created everything and everyone through his son. Colossians 1.15 tells us that. The son is the firstborn over all creation. That's certainly not to say that he was created first, because we don't want to get into that idea that Jesus was a created being and somehow lesser than God, because that's ultimately not true. Jesus and God are equal with the Holy Spirit, all equal. You can't create yourself. Things can only be created by someone or something that is greater and existed previously. And in Jewish culture, being the firstborn, like Paul calls Jesus, said less about your birth's timing than it said about your family rank. As the firstborn, Jesus outranks everyone who was created. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. Logically and simply because he created them all. It's a simple premise. The creator is greater than the creation. So when my kids bring me the awesome snake that they made out of Play-Doh, <laughs> I know that my kid is a whole lot better than that snake that they just made, right? It's a simple premise for us to understand. And that's what Paul is driving at there. But if you switch that formula a lot of, uh, around, a lot of things go sideways, when people begin to elevate the creation over the creator, uh, then your superior religion crumbles to a inferior, on an inferior foundation. So when a family patriarch died, the first son represented the father as the family head. That's how it worked. He was given the same authority as the father had enjoyed and all the other siblings were expected to respect then that authority. Colossians 1.16 says, for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And then later on in the later letter, Paul mentions the importance of not worshiping angels. Like we had talked about, Colossians 2.18, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. He's consistently going back to, to what is bad philosophy. He consistently is going back to the idea of, of the Gnostics and who they were and what they believed. Gnostics believed that spiritual things were good and physical things were bad. God was good because he was spirit and Jesus was bad because he took the form of human flesh. That's what they would have put forth. That's the Colossian heresy. Gnostics believed then because angels were spirit, they were therefore what? Good. Because they're spirit, they're not physical. Angels are good. And if anything is good, it should be worshipped. Gave them a higher rank than, than humans, gave them a higher rank than, than Jesus did. But, interesting fact, angels were actually designed as a lower-ranking part of creation. 1 Corinthians 6.3, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more than the things of this life? They are lower than us. 
in rank. But beyond that, Jesus outranks everyone and everything because he operates beyond everyone else's limitations. That's who Jesus is. Christ existed long before Jesus was born. Think about that. Christ existed long before Jesus was born. At Bethlehem, Christ became flesh. As Eugene, Eugene Peterson put it, who just passed away, for those of you who don't know, but Eugene Peterson passed away just last week. He paraphrased it, John 1.14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It's a great way to be able to describe it. John 8, 58, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. That's bad grammar. In explaining to the Jews that he predated Abraham, he could have said, and it would have made a whole lot more sense to the audience, was before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham was, I was. But his intended point went far beyond a mere claim to being really old. He was claiming to be the same one who met Moses in the burning bush. Exodus 3.14, this is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. That's bad grammar as well. And in Colossians, the brilliant apostle Paul becomes another grammatician as well, where he says in Colossians 1.17, he is before all things. That was either really bad grammar or really good theology. Christ is the transcending God. He is preeminent, who existed outside of our dimension, outside of our space, outside of our time, but that intersected our linear reality and became a human infant named Jesus. Christ existed outside of time and stepped into time in order to step in on our behalf, in order that our sins could be reconciled that we could then be reconciled to God forever. Christ had no beginning, but when he took the form of man and intersected our timeline, he became part of, uh, part of our time and our space universe. So Paul tells them that there is a solution then to this syncretism. There is a solution to the idea that, that you don't believe that Jesus is preeminent. Here's your solution. It's really, really difficult. It's section four, chapters three, three, one through four, six, the major theme solution. He says that since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things where above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. The identity of those in Colossae simply needed to be aligned to Christ as they set their mind on things above. So Paul says, quick question, anybody ever try to diet? Okay, 95% of you are lying right now because I see a hand raise. I saw one and she's 12. Okay, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so as you, uh, and, and, and go with me on this for a second, as you consistently try to eat healthier, you don't do it by creating what you think is going to be a good diet, Right? Like, you don't do that. You don't sit down at your table one day. You're like, you know what? I got to lose those 10 pounds that I'm about to put on at Christmas. Okay. You don't sit down at your table and be like, okay, here's a list of healthy things. Most of my kids Halloween candy. That's on there because when I eat it, it gives me energy right away. So obviously that has to be a good thing for me to put into my body. So that's one of the things that's going to be on my list. And also, you know what? Another thing that I'm going to put on my list is Diet Coke. 
I want to put Diet Coke on there. Because it says diet, I know that it's good for me, and I'm on a diet. And so because of that, I'm going to put that into my diet, right? And you keep going down the list. And you're like, you know what else is going to be good for me? Probably McDonald's. Because I can go through the McDonald's drive through and I will be less stressed about making dinner at home later on. And so less stress in my life is obviously a healthy thing for me. And so you're creating this whole plan. You're like, you know what? And you get to the end, you're like, I think... I think this is going to work. I mean, in moderation, of course, but it's going to work. Definitely, definitely going to work. You do research. You don't do that. You do research. You read books. You listen to podcasts. You do whatever it is you need to do. Ladies go on Pinterest. I'm not sorry about throwing Pinterest under the bus a few weeks ago, by the way. I heard some comments about that. Don't care. Um, Thank you. Let's close in prayer on that. You do whatever it is that you need to do, but ultimately you implement it by thinking about what is good for your body, what is actually good. You do the research. You look at those things. You implement strategies that are going to increase your health. And this is what Paul is asking them to do. To elevate their sight lines to what Christ actually has for them. To elevate their sight lines to what is healthy living. Which leads us into a salutation in section 5. It's going to be chapters 4, verses 17 through 18, major theme, salutation. And this is what 4.18 says. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Strong sentence we don't have time to get into. But remember my chains. Grace be with you. It's important for us to remember that Paul is writing them as someone who loves them and someone who wants to see them do better. So Paul laid the smack down right in the middle of this letter. He tells them, look, all of these things that you're doing is wrong. And this is what right living looks like. You need to elevate your sight line, set your mind on things above, stop doing the things that you know you shouldn't be doing. Stop thinking about those things. Stop thinking that philosophy is a good philosophy because ultimately it's hollow. Those traditions that you are perpetuating are hollow traditions. Stop it. So Paul says, he starts his letter by talking about how much he loves them, lays the smack down on them, and then says, but look, I love you. And that's why I did it. Sound familiar? Anybody ever had to reprimand anybody at work? Even your kids, you're like, okay, good, bad, good, later. And that's what Paul is doing in his letter here. He's telling them, look, I love you a whole lot. This is what you need to do. I love you a whole lot. How much more should we be able to do that in our lives as well? To start with love and end with love and sandwich it, sandwich truth in between those two things. But ultimately, if you don't start with love, you never get the opportunity to get to truth. And then they never feel love on the back end of that either. Your big idea essentially for this is we need to elevate our sight lines to the sufficiency of Christ. We need to elevate our sight lines to the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is sufficient for all things. We have to elevate our sight lines. Can you imagine what it would look like? Man, and I'm just going to go there. Can you imagine what it would look like if we elevated our sight lines about, we, about what we have constructed as Jesus's choice of the political parties. I know some of you are going to be like, I don't know if I want to go to church next week. Um, But the reality is, is that we're voting really soon. 
And if you don't vote, you should. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. That's your call. But you should vote. It's your, it's, your, it's your responsibility to do so. Living in America, living in the country that we live in, that is your freedom to exercise that right to vote. And so go vote. But what I would say is this, is that as we even unpack this, the church in Colossae and everything that they're doing, and then we look back at the things that we worship, the things that we identify as, are we identifying as Christians first? Are we identifying as Christians first and everything else second, regardless of what it is? Are we identifying as Peter is a Christian first, and then he's a dad, and then he's a husband, and then he's a pastor, and then he is whatever political affiliation I decide I want to be. Ha, I thought you were going to get something from me, huh? <laughs> but are we starting with love? And so I would say, as you do indeed exercise your right to vote, and again, you vote how you feel like the Holy Spirit has convicted you to do so. But I would say, don't just open the flyer and look at whether there is a D next to things or whether there is an R next to things. Do your homework. Open it up and say, okay, God tells me all of these things in the Bible. All of these ways that I'm supposed to live is correction for right living. Everything that I need to know for good living is here. And so I would say, open up your, your voter information guide and open up your Bible if you need to. And say, okay, prop whatever it is. This says that it's going to end care to whomever, or this is going to start care for whomever. Are we starting with love? Are we starting with love and are we sandwiching truth in between the two? Because God and Jesus balance the two perfectly with truth and with grace over and over and over and over again. And so as you exercise that responsibility, I need all of us to elevate our sight lines above our political affiliation and say, I am a Christian first. You know how much drastically different the, the landscape of Facebook would look if we elevated Christ first? And I'm not even saying that you're not allowed to have your political opinions. You are. I do. I have them. But if my political affiliation is louder than my affiliation with Christ, something is wrong. And that's syncretism. And that's what Paul is combating here. Copy paste to 2018. But would you imagine what our congregation would look like? What the, the capital C church would look like instead of getting pe into petty arguments on Facebook about political matters that ultimately we aren't going to be able to solve. We decided to love first. We decided to give people the benefit of the doubt over and over and over again. Cause it's a whole lot harder for me to look somebody in the eye and call them a bigot and call them a hypocrite when I'm sitting across the table knowing that that is a created being, God's created son or daughter sitting across from me. And I refuse to be a keyboard hero and say, I'm going to say whatever I want. I'm going to throw it into the atmosphere and people can think what they want to think about me. Because that's opposite to what the Bible says. Elevate your sight lines. That's what we've been called to. Man, church, if we could be known for love and not our political affiliation... That would go a whole long way. And that's what ultimately Paul is trying to get to with the church in Colossae. Let's pray.
Father, Lord, help us elevate those sight lines. God, help us love you first. Help us love you best. Help us fight against the idea of syncretism. And God, I I, I am so happy. I am so incredibly happy to be born into the greatest country ever. But that being said, Father, I, I pray that I would realize my responsibility of who I am supposed to be first, that I am supposed to be your son first. I'm supposed to represent you to others first. God, elevate my sight lines to things that, that are above the political landscape in which we find ourselves. God, move through these people. Move through our congregation. God, let a mighty wind blow through us that would emanate with love over and over and over again. And Father, let, let, let your truth be known as we present ourselves in a loving way. As we get that relational equity, that we get the right to talk to people about the things that are so near and dear to us, about your truth, about your word, that we would recognize we start with love, we insert truth, truth, and we end with love. In the same way that Paul speaks to the church in Colossae, thank you for his example. Thank you for that church. God, I pray that you would elevate the sight lines of everybody who is here. God, I... uh, I pray for those who are here and don't yet know you. God, I pray if, if they don't yet know you, Father, I pray that, that, that they would just follow along with me with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, that A, they would pray in the silence of their hearts that I, that, that I, am, I admit that I am a sinner in need of a Savior, that I'm messed up, that I focus on the temporal, that I sin on a regular basis, just like every single one of us, that we would admit that in our hearts, that be, that we would believe that you sent your son, your preeminent son, to die on that cross, to conquer death on our behalf so we could be with you forever and see that we would choose to follow you every single day of our lives. God, that we would elevate our sight lines above the temporal, we would elevate our sight lines above social media, we would elevate our sight lines above political ideologies. We'd elevate our sight lines above everything else, be able to focus on you first as everything else is secondary. God, I pray that we would choose that every single day of our lives. Father, we love you a whole lot. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Hey guys, thanks for being here with us today. If you want prayer, want to chat, myself and Jeff will be up here for a little bit after service. Other than that, we'll see you Wednesday night. Bye-bye.